All right, 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So anyway, last week, of course, we looked at verses 1-9 through of chapter 3, as Paul begins to sort of rebuke the, Christ, uh, the Corinthian church here for the divisions that they have uh, started to foment in the church. And of course, just by way of reminder, the Corinthian church had in the time of Paul uh, been away, uh, from the time that Paul has been away from them, they had succumbed to these uh, divisions and schisms that they were sort of uh, forming in the church. And these divisions were based on sort of a cult of personality, you know, your favorite teacher for whatever reason, whether you just like the way he preached, whether he was the one that brought you to faith, whether he was the one that baptized you, um, whether you just like the cut of his jib, whatever the reason, they were dividing over these teachers. And this then caused divisions and strife and jealousy and all kinds of nasty things in the church. And Paul's point leading up to chapter 3 is that The message of the cross, that is the gospel, which is foolish to the world, those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. So Paul then rebukes these Corinthians for their selfish, foolish, fleshly, worldly behavior because it reflects a fleshly, worldly way of thinking. They are sort of falling victim of the culture in which that church was established. They're still, you know, they're trying to come out of the world, but they're still showing that they're kind of tethered to the world by this behavior that they have here. In fact, when he begins chapter 3, he begins by saying that while he desired to address them as spiritual people, he couldn't. He has to address them as carnal, as fleshly, as babies in Christ. That's what we looked at last week. They are not acting as spiritual people. They are not acting as people who are being governed by the Holy Spirit, people who are being sort of ruled or, or moved along by the Holy Spirit. They are acting according to their fleshly nature. They are behaving in a carnal way. In other words, they're ba- basically they're behaving like every other person outside of the church in Corinth. They're behaving like Corinthians, not like Christians. So he calls them babies. Their behavior exhibits an immaturity that ought not to be present in people who are Christians. 
Not, not, again, if you remember last week, we talked about it's like it's not wrong to be a baby in Christ, right? Everyone's got to start somewhere. Um, you know, we all start off as babies physically. We start off as babies spiritually. The point is, is that they were still stuck as babies. They were like, you know, eight-year-old babies or <laughs> 12-year-old babies. You know, people who are, you know, still haven't matured because they hadn't grown so they, you know, while Paul says you should be eating meat now, you should be digesting solid food, you're still drinking out of a bottle. You're still acting like a child. And the proof that they were acting like child was the fact that they had divisions in the church. Bless you. These divisions are a way of showing your fleshly carnal behavior. And you are, you're, you're creating strife in the church. You're creating uh, jealousy in the church. And we looked at Galatians 5 and showed how these, among others, strife and jealousy, are works of the flesh. That's why Paul says you're being carnal. You're acting according to the flesh. Now the rest of the passage here begins to explain the nature of gospel ministry. Where Paul says, look, me, myself, Paul, Apollos, Peter, all the other apostles, all the other pastors and teachers, we're servants. We're people called by God to serve the church. So dividing over the servants is foolish. It's fleshly. It's, it's carnal. It's infantile to argue and divide over servants. Now each of these servants, as Paul says, we each had God-given gifts and roles to play in, in the building of the church. Some of us are planters. Some of us are waterers. But the point is, we're all working in God's field. We're all laboring together in God's building. And in the end, it is God who brings the growth and the salvation. So dividing over us is silly. It's foolish. And herein, again, lies the foolishness of the Corinthian church. The pastors and teachers, he says, we are one. We are one. He says that in... Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one. We are one in purpose. We are one in calling. We are one in our service to the church. We have different tasks to perform, but those tasks serve the same goal. So their, their ministry was to build God's church, not to create a following. And I'm sure each one of those men, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, would have been appalled to see that the church in Corinth was dividing over them. Not, not, none of them would have been there to build a following. So as we come now to our passage this morning, he's going to close, uh, he closes the last passage again with verse 9, where he says, um, you, uh, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. And he's going to carry now that building metaphor through verses 10 through 17 to show how the church is a building upon the foundation of the gospel. Those who labor at it are building upon the foundation that has been laid. And we're going to see how you know, the, 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 the way you build on that foundation will determine you know, the rewards that the ministers and the, and the servants get. But as we now look at the first section here, uh, take heed how you build in verses 10 and 11. Again, after saying in verse 9 that he and Apollos and Peter are all God's fellow workers and that the Corinthian 
church is God's field and God's building, Paul says in verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So here Paul prefaces his comments in verses 10 and 11 uh, by acknowledging that the, it was a, the grace of God that was given to him. Paul wouldn't have this ministry if it weren't for the grace of God. Paul wouldn't be preaching to the Corinthian church if it wasn't for the grace of God, which had taken him, right? It took him out of a life of dead-end legalism in uh, Pharisaical Judaism and called him to this purpose to be a light to the Gentiles, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to carry the good news to the Gentiles. So this grace that Paul or that God gives Paul is what then fuels and what empowers his ministry to the Corinthian church. So it is the grace that it is uh, according to the grace of God which was given to me. Then he said he goes on to say that as a wise or a skilled master builder I laid a foundation. So this phrase here, wise master builder, uh, translates a phrase called sophos architectone. Okay, you can almost kind of hear architect in there. That's where you get the word architect. But it's the, the word literally means a, a chief builder, an experienced head builder. He is the architect, right? He is the architect, but he is a wise, he is a skilled architect using sort of the the Jewish idea of wisdom. See, the Greek idea of wisdom is sort of to get a head full of knowledge and you know, lord it over people. For the Jewish mind, wisdom was skill. It was experience in living. It was experience in living the good life. So here you can say, instead of saying wise, you could also say skilled. I think skilled is probably a little better in the context. But he is a skilled architect. And he lays this foundation. He says, I have laid a foundation as a wise, experienced gospel architect. And that's how Paul is shown throughout the book of Acts, right? In the first, uh, um, more than half of the book of Acts is devoted to Paul's ministry. As, on his first, third, and, you know, second and third missionary journeys, uh, we see Paul going out, establishing churches from town to town to town. He is a wise master builder, laying a foundation of the gospel in each of these places. In fact, you can go so far as to say no human being, right, has been more instrumental to the church than the Apostle Paul. Now we know God's building the church, right? God, it's, this is God's work. But if, from a purely human perspective, no person has been more instrumental to the, build, you know, to the foundation and the growth of the church than the Apostle Paul. Right, I mean, he took the gospel to Europe. He took the gospel pretty much across the entire Roman Empire at that time. And there were churches all over the place within 30 years of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And Paul was particularly gifted by God's grace to lay foundations in many places throughout the Mediterranean region there. But he also says here, while he acknowledges that he laid a foundation, he also says that others have come and then started to build on that foundation. In this case, he could be, he's almost certainly referring to Apollos and maybe even Peter. You know, others had come to Corinth. So he came to Corinth, he laid the foundation. 
Apollos comes along and starts to build on it. Peter comes along and starts to build on it. And as I said last week, again, pastors and teachers, ministers, servants of the church are variously gifted. Some are foundation layers, like Paul. Others are those that build upon the foundation, like Apollos. And God is pleased to use us all for His purposes. But Paul was gifted to be a foundation layer. That's, that's what he told the, the, the Roman church. You could flip back just a few pages to Romans 15.20. He told the, the Romans at the end of this letter where he is you know, saying that, um, you know, how he has worked and, and served and labored. You know, the, how the Gospel has gone out from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 15, he tells Romans, And so I have made it my aim to preach the Gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. So Paul didn't want to go, <laughs> I don't know if this is pride or this is just his, his mindset, but whatever it was, he didn't want to go where there was already an established church and build on it. Not that that's bad, that's, that's good. But he wanted to go where there was no foundation laid. He wanted to be the guy out there on the vanguard, on the, on the cutting edge of gospel ministry, laying foundations where there had been, uh, had, none had been laid. And then you know, he was perfectly willing then to let other people come along later and build on that foundation. But he was a foundation layer. He was a church planter. He was an evangelist. That was his motivation. That was his calling. He wanted to go where the gospel had not yet been preached, and that was his motivating principle. But then he warns those who build on that foundation, take heed how one builds on it. Right? You have to take care how you build on the foundation. And why not? We are talking about God's building. Again, verse 9. The church is God's building. So you have to take heed. You have to take care on how you build on the foundation that is laid. And we'll, we're going to look at some of the building materials, if you will, in the next few verses. But here the metaphor is about gospel ministry. And this is a calling from God that should humble every gospel minister. You are called to build upon the foundation. And Paul gives us the reason for this care and concern in verse 11 where he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So when Paul says no other foundation can be laid other than that which is laid, it's really just a way of saying that there is no other foundation for the church than Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. If you try to build the foundation of the church on something other than Christ, you don't have a church. You have something else. A social club. You have a book club. You have whatever you want to call it. It is not a church. Because it is not founded upon Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation to the church. Isaiah 28.16 You don't need to turn there. I'll just turn there myself and read it. But Isaiah 28.16 uh, the prophet says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion. You remember from Revelation where Zion is? 
All right, the heavenly mount. I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So God is saying, I'm laying a stone, a foundation stone, Isaiah 28.16. And that stone is Christ. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this foundation, which God has laid in Zion. That's what he said. And we're going to look at this, actually. You know, it's providential how this kind of flows with what we've been learning. We're going to see this in the sermon this morning in Daniel 2 about the foundation stone. But uh, Paul will say in Ephesians that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And then the rest of the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. So the, the, the temple of the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the, the load-bearing stone, the one that supports the entire structure as the chief cornerstone. But when Paul says that the foundation is Jesus Christ, he means both that it is Jesus Christ Himself, His person and His work, and also the message of that person and work. That is the Gospel. The message of the cross is the foundation. The message of Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. Everything that is encapsulated in that. So there is only one true foundation for the church, and that is Christ. In fact, in couple letters later in the letters to the Galatian churches. Uh, he starts off by telling them in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. So, so that's pretty early in the letter, right? You know, I mean, Paul's introductions usually go on for at least 10, 10 verses. But he, you know, he says, hi, I'm Paul, you know, writing to the Galatians, grace and peace. What are you guys doing? You know, it's like, he can't do, he, he's like, I need to get through this introduction real quick and then start to lay in them. What are you guys doing? What are you doing? I hear that you are rejecting the gospel. There is no other gospel. If an angel comes down from heaven and tells you another gospel than the one I preached to you, let that person or let that angel be accursed. And then he says, if I tell you something other than what I told you before, let me be accursed. There is no other gospel. There is no other foundation. Matthew 7, right? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builder, the one who builds his house on the rock, and the one who builds his house in the sand. The sand is not Jesus, okay? The sand is not the gospel. The sand is not the foundation of Christ. That house comes tumbling down. The house built on the rock stands during the storms. So again, any church that's built on a foundation of anything other than Jesus Christ is not a church. It is not a true church. All right, let's move on. Verses 12 through 15. The testing of your works. So he continues this building metaphor. Paul begins now to look at the materials that are used in building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. So he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation, that is Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day. How many people have day capitalized? Okay, pretty much everybody. Okay. For the day will declare it 
because if it, it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So now here in verse 12, we really shouldn't see Paul as mentioning six different types of building materials. It's really two different types of building materials. Okay, You have gold, silver, precious stones, and then you have wood, hay, straw. Okay, Now these are metaphorical. right? We're not talking literally about building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with literal gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. It's a metaphor of the way or the manner one can build upon the foundation, okay? The way or the manner that one, basically the way or the manner of one's ministry. Because these verses here, 12 through 15, really 12 through 17, are primarily geared towards ministers, pastors, teachers, servants of the church. It can be broadly applied to everybody, but it is focused mostly on the ministers because that's what Paul's argument here is. You know, remember, this is still all in the context of divisions in the church, right? And here he's talking about the ministry of the servants that you guys are dividing over. So he's like, look, whoever comes in and serves the church, you have to, he has, that person has to take heed how he builds on the foundation. You know, if you're dividing over people who are building on a, you know, using crappy materials to build on the foundation, you know, then, you know, more... Uh, more so that you are foolish. But again, this is the way or the manner one builds on the foundation. Like I said, it's probably best to see them as two groups. So you have your gold, your silver, and your precious stones. These are quality building materials. In fact, these are the same materials that are often used and described in the Old Testament for the the construction of the temple. Solomon's temple in in 1 Kings had a lot of gold. I mean... (laughs) A lot of gold. I mean, you know, if you read, read through First Kings, and you know, he, Solomon was sending ships all over the place to bring gold to Jerusalem to build the temple. The temple was, you know, if, if, if it wasn't solid gold, it was gold plated. You know, gold plated something, solid gold this. And then when they, you know, when there was no gold left, then he went to silver and bronze and other things, and all kinds of precious stones all over the place in the temple. So quality building materials for the, and that were typically used in the temple. Then the other group, wood, hay, and straw, these would be low quality or worthless building materials, particularly if you're talking about a temple. You know, a temple of straw. <laughs> a temple of straw. I mean, how good would a temple of straw be? You know, it kind of reminds me of the three pigs, right? You know, you got the you know, what were the, what was it, you know, he had the brick house, that was the good one, right? What was the, the first one had straw, right, wasn't it? You know, and the wolf comes and blows it down. What was the other one? Was it wood? Wood? I don't remember. Sticks? Whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, and blows that one down, and then the, the brick, you know, the brick house there. Uh, you know, he huffed and he puffed and he couldn't blow it down. Another way to see these materials, these groupings of these materials, is to see them as either perishable or imperishable. Okay, Perishable or imperishable. Which again is, is fitting considering how we're going to see in verse 13, you see this trial of fire. Right? Fire will just you know, consume straw like nothing. You, know, you, you light a match of straw, poof, it just goes right up. You know, hay, probably the same thing, maybe a little longer. Wood will burn. It'll take a little longer to burn the wood, but all that, you put it in the fire, it goes up in flames. 
you know, the gold, the silver, the precious stones will not be destroyed by the flame. Now again, this primarily speaks of the activity of those who build on the foundation. I want to continue to remind you of that. So Paul, Apollos, Peter, other pastors and teachers and ministers in the church. And given what Paul has already been saying through this section here, in regards to spiritual versus fleshly, it seems reasonable then to connect spiritual with imperishable and to connect fleshly with perishable. So that's why Paul then warns the Corinthians, take care or take heed how one builds on the foundation. If you're going to build on this foundation with fleshly works, okay, what would be fleshly works? Well, you're building in your own strength. You're not relying on the Holy Spirit. You're building according, you're ministering according to the wisdom of the world. You're, you're not handling the word of truth, God's word, rightly. You're, you're interpreting it the world's way of interpreting it. Or you're kind of reading into it things that you already want to sort of preach and teach anyway. Or you're laboring for your own glory. You're building, uh, you're building your own following. That's building with wood, hay, and straw. Because when the fire tests it, it's just going to go up in the flames. So that, that's fleshly. That's perishable. Spiritual or imperishable way, it would be laboring according to the Holy Spirit. Um, teaching and expounding the Word of God with all prayer and petition. Uh, you know, relying on the Spirit's power to minister. Realizing that as, as servants of God, we're weak. We're jars of clay, right? That's what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians. I'm a jar. We are all just jars of clay. The glory lies within us. It's the message that's within us. Um, So recognizing that you cannot do this in your own strength, recognizing that you're building for the Lord's glory, that you're laboring in the Lord's field, that is laboring according to the Spirit with imperishable things like gold, silver, and precious stones. Now in verse 13, we see the trial of fire again. So each one's work will become clear. And I want to kind of camp out on that just a little bit. That's the word phaneros. We've seen this word. Others' translations may say manifest. Okay? Which means that it may not always be clear in the moment that someone is building with wood, hay, and straw. Right? You might be going to a church or maybe you're listening to some, some guy on a, on, a, on a TV show or on a, you know, on a podcast and he's got this wonderful following and you, maybe you don't know that he's teaching, you know, that he's working with imperishable materials. It may appear like he's a, a godly teacher, but then you realize, well, yeah, he was teaching us the Word, but it was, you know, he was building his own following. I mean, I've, I've, we went to a church in Illinois, a huge church in Illinois, and um, that pastor fell out of favor after like about, what was it, maybe five, ten years after we left that church. Uh, fell out of favor big time. You know, I, you know and, and you wouldn't have noticed it at the time we were going. You wouldn't have noticed it before then. You know, you just thought, well, it's a large church. The Lord's blessing His work because He's faithful. You know, and He seemed faithful. But then that's the thing. You don't know. You don't know half the time what's going on in these people's minds, what temptations they're facing. Um, so it's not always evident. Right. Now. 
but it will become evident on the day. It will be revealed. It will become manifest. It will be made known. Indicates that at this time it won't always be evident who's using gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Again, some pastors, teachers make it clear they're false teachers. Some, some of them are pretty obviously false teachers, right? They're, they make no bones about it. Other, again, others, not, not so clear. But again, consider you know, Jesus' words again in Matthew 7 at the end of the um, Sermon on the Mount in verses 21 through 23. He says to his disciples, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now here Jesus is referring, of course, to false teachers, false prophets, those who who claim to be doing the Lord's work. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? didn't, Didn't I build a church for your name? Didn't I preach your word in your name? But even with false teachers, it is not always clear that they're false teachers. Jesus himself will say, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. And here Paul says that the day will reveal the works of everyone who ministers in the name of Christ. It will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And just a side note on the phraser, the day. Again, I remember it was capitalized. There the day refers to the return of Christ at the end of the age. Uh, The fire is God's examination of the works of believers. Uh, There's a very similar passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul says there in that letter, uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us are going to be standing there, and we're going to be judged by our works. Judgment's always based on works. Now, not salvation. This is how judgment is going to be applied. Now, the judgment of God, His wrath has is, is been paid for on Christ. So here, in the case of believers, your work will be judged. And again, think of the parable of the talents, right? You know, that's a very well-known parable. Everybody knows that one. But you have, you know, the, ser- you know, the master gives three servants varying uh, amounts of money. The first two take that money and they work and invest it. And they bring back to the Lord when he returns a return on his investment. So the first guy says, Lord, you gave me five talents and here I worked and invested in it. And here's five more talents. Your, 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 your investment returned a profit of five more talents. And the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the second one, who had two talents. So it's just to indicate, as long as you're faithful with what the Lord gives you, you know, the Lord may not give you five talents. The Lord may not give you two talents. 
As long as you're faithful with what He's given you, then the Lord will be pleased with the work that you do. So the guy with two says, look, your two talents earned two talents more. And the Lord's like, well done, good faithful servant. Come on into the joy of your master. And then the guy who has one, who, who had a very mistaken impression of the master, he says, you are a harsh man. So I was afraid to lose your money. I didn't want to put it into the stock market. I hid it under my bed. And the master says, so I'm a harsh guy, you think. Okay, well, let's see how harsh I am. It's like, you could have at least put the money in the bank. And even in today's savings investing, <laughs> savings and, uh, uh, you know, interest that you get in a savings account, I've gotten my percent back on that day. <laughs> it's like you could have at least put it in the savings account. A CD, do something. Put it in a very low-risk thing. And he says, no, but you didn't do that. So he, he punishes that servant. And again, that's what's going to happen here. We see this, uh, that this will happen. Again, the examination is not, 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 I want to emphasize that, not determinative of our salvation, but of our rewards. Again, in Romans 2, if you remember there, Romans 2, we looked at this about a year ago, feels like, maybe a little over a year ago. In verse 6, we talk about here, um, God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So again, in Romans 2, we see that the works determine the reward. Not salvation. Salvation is always, always, always by faith, by grace through faith. But even the rewards that God gives us are gracious. They're not meritorious, right? It's not like we can do anything that would put God in debt to us. Right? God says in Job, I am in debt to no man. I am in debt to no man. Any reward God gives us is a gracious reward. It is, it is, you know, I, I've used the example before of the little child drawing the painting, you know, the picture of the parents that doesn't look anything like the parents, but God still, you know, the parent is still pleased at that picture and rewards the child with praise and love and all this stuff. You know, again, it's not because of the worthiness of the, the picture. It's because you love the child. And the same thing, God is gracious to us because he loves us in Christ. He rewards our Good works, even though our good works don't merit any kind of reward from God. So I want to really be clear on that. But God agrees and is gracious to reward our works and our labors in the Lord. So now we go on to verses 14 and 15, because that's what we see here is the judgment or the, how the works are, are, are determined here. So the, the, the works are revealed by fire. What we do, how we build on the foundation will be determined and tested by fire. And in verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So if you labored in the Lord, obviously using gold, silver, and precious stones, because those are the only things that will survive the fire, you will receive a reward from the Lord. If you build with wood, hay, and straw, you will not receive a reward from the Lord. Verse 15, right? Uh, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 
So the fire tests our works. It tests our labors. And if our works survive the fire, we get a reward. If it doesn't, our works are burned up, but He Himself will be saved. So here we're, see, we're seeing that the person who uses wood, hay, and straw is not necessarily an unbeliever. It's just someone who doesn't build according to the Spirit. It's someone who doesn't, who doesn't um, labor rightly for the Lord. For whatever, again, for whatever reason. In other words, salvation, true salvation, cannot be lost despite how poorly we live the Christian life. Now, that's, a good, that's good news in, in a way, right? right? So you cannot lose salvation based on how poorly you live the Christian life. Now, that's not an excuse to say, well, I'm going to just live a shoddy Christian life because I can't lose my salvation. See, that's the flip side, right? We should praise God for that, not take that as an excuse to live shabbily. It's just saying that true Christians can labor. We can labor according to the flesh at times. That's the point. We may labor according to the flesh. We may throw in some wood, hay, and straw with some silver and precious stones in our work. And the point is, is like, it's not about salvation. But obviously, if the, works, the works that survive the fire are constructed of imperishable materials. And as I said, the wood, the hay, and the straw, they just go up in flames. So now finally, in verses 16 and 17, after describing the testing of a minister's work, Paul uses a familiar Paul way of speaking in verse 16 where he says, do you not know? That's sort of like Jesus saying, have you not read? Paul just says, do you not know? (laughs) Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In other words, you should know this. You should know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verses 16 and 17, it kind of feels a little disjointed from what we had before it. Maybe it feels like Paul's talking about something else uh, because it seems like his talking about the temple here seems an abrupt change of topic. But he really is still continuing this building metaphor from verse 9. And again, we mentioned this briefly before, the idea of gold, silver, precious stones, those were the materials used in the construction of Solomon's temple. And here, not to mention, uh, verse 9, Paul refers to the church of Corinth as God's building. So what is God's building? Begins with a T. Yeah. And ends with emple. <laughs> Begins with T and ends in emple. Yeah. The temple. That is God's building. God's building is the temple. Now, because I'm me, I, I'm sure I've made mention of the temple imagery in reference to the church before, right? And it's a beautiful image. The temple is a beautiful image of God dwelling with his people. That's the idea of the temple. You know, uh, uh, you, know you can read through the Bible, you can see the temple. The temple is like, wasn't that the place where they killed a bunch of animals? Yeah, it's the place where they killed a bunch of animals. But it's also where God dwelt, right? Because at the center of the temple was the most holy place where God was, right? Where the ark was, where the high priest could only go in once a year. And the reason it was so you know, layered to get in is because God is holy 
And we are not. So in order for us to live with the Holy God, we have to go through the layers of sacrifice to atone for our sin. But that was God's original creative purpose all the way back in the beginning, was to dwell with His people. The Garden of Eden was a garden temple, a place in which God dwelt with Adam and Eve and, and, and communed with them and fellowship with them. Uh, but Adam, of course, and, and, and his wife could not uh, maintain that fellowship because they broke God's law. Then the image of God dwelling with His people is carried on in the Old Testament with the tabernacle, the, the traveling throne room of God, and then carried on through the temple, which was a more permanent form of the tabernacle when that was constructed in Jerusalem. And then with the coming of Jesus, we see Jesus is the fulfillment of all this temple imagery because He is Emmanuel, right? We shall call Him Emmanuel. That's not His name. You call Him Emmanuel because that's what He is. He is God dwelling with us. And then with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, then we see an even further development of this Emmanuel principle as the church collectively becomes a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells, which is what Paul says here. You are a temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God is dwelling somewhere, it is the temple. If He's dwelling in the church, the church is the temple. Later on in 1 Corinthians 6.19, when we get there, Paul will now even drill that down even further. Each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you went from God with us to now God within us. Right? That's what the Holy Spirit is. And then finally, the Emmanuel principle comes to its final and ultimate consummation with the New Jerusalem at the end of the age. The New Jerusalem, which is the church, comes down out of heaven. And we're told in Revelation 21 that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And you're like, no temple in Jerusalem? What's up with that? Well, there's no temple in Jerusalem because God is there and the Lamb is there dwelling in the midst of His people. So all of this then fulfills that covenantal language which we see so often in the Bible where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and all of this will be fulfilled. So Paul's point here is that the building that is being erected upon the foundation of Christ is the church. It is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And as such, then Paul issues a dire warning in verse 17. If anyone defiles, some of your translations may say destroys, the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In fact, in verse 17 where it says, if you have New King James, it says defiles, and later on God will destroy uh, if you have ESV, you might say, if anyone destroys, then God will destroy, right? Is that what you have? Yeah, it's the same word. Well, of course it's the same word, it's destroy. No, I mean, it's the same word in the Greek, okay? It's the same word in the Greek, destroy, destroy, or defile, defile. So now here, we're, not just no, we're no longer talking about building on the foundation of God with inferior materials, right? We're talking about defiling. We're talking about destroying the temple, and just to say, you know, to, in this, to bring this back around to Paul's greater point in this section, divisions destroy the temple. Divisions defile the temple. 
So here we're talking about someone who's actively trying to destroy or defile God's temple. And that's what divisions do. That's what Paul is trying to get to this point to these people here. It's like, your divisions, are, you're beyond building with wood, hay, and straw. You are now defiling the temple. You're destroying God's temple. And the one who defiles God's temple, will, that one God will destroy. Think of the story in Leviticus 10, right? With Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? Right, Their first day practicing as priests, they go into the temple, and they were supposed, you know, God gave them very, very detailed instructions on how to offer fire and things before the Lord. And Nadab and Abihu said, nah, it's okay, we'll do it our own way. They, you know, they must have been listening to some Frank Sinatra. You know, I did it my way. They go into the temple, they offer a little bit of fire, and God says, nope, and poof, they're gone. Right? They're gone. God just destroys them. They defiled the temple. They defiled a holy God. They did not regard God as holy. They did not respect His law. They sought to worship in their own way. And as such, God destroyed them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Again, this is very, very, very serious. Very, very serious. If you remember as we've been, and I know I'm running out of time here, so, but I'm almost done. Uh, if you remember in, through our study in Revelation as we went through the letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus has a warning for each one of those churches. Well, two of them, not really. But generally speaking, he has a warning for those churches. If you don't stop what you're doing, I am going to remove your lampstand. The lampstand was representative of the church. And Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. So he says, if you don't stop doing your sin or whatever it is, in whichever way you're defiling the temple, I will remove your lampstand and you will cease to be a church. And that's the point. Now, here we need to say when we see the church will be destroyed, we're not saying that the church universal will be destroyed. But the local church, right? The church in Corinth can be destroyed but not the universal church because Jesus himself promised to build the church and he says the gates of Hades will not prevail. But churches, local churches, which continue to defile themselves can and will be destroyed. And just like God allowed the destruction of his temple in Israel for, in Jerusalem for Israel's repeated sin and idolatry, so too God will allow a church that leaves its Lord to be destroyed. That's why Paul says, take heed how you build upon the foundation of Christ. For you, by doing so, you have to recognize you are building the temple of God. Next time, Lord willing, next week, the 19th, we'll, look, we'll finish chapter 3, 18 through 23.